All right, everyone, welcome to this episode of the Cornell Review Roundtable Discussion. I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Joe Silverstein. I'm the Managing Editor, Sam Kim. I'm the Digital Editor, Quinn Aldamodri. I'm Roland Molina, Military Affairs Analyst. So before we got on the air, we were having an interesting uh, conversation about communism and the failures of communism and how communists are so convinced that if they just tried it and did it the right way, uh, it would be, in their words, it would go well. Uh, so Quentin, could you just speak to that a little bit? We were having a good conversation off the air and we wanted to replicate it for the listeners here. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that there, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different, uh, different varieties of, uh, of, you know, communists, socialists, and, you know, Marxists, or socialists who aren't Marxists, uh, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of different varieties, I recognize that. Usually when you get the people who say, oh, well, communism has never been tried, they're the people who say, oh, well, we just need a massive state, and then eventually that will turn into a stateless society without class, you know. It's this idea that basically any semblance of, you know, class or any of that kind of thing, right, it's all just a uh, societal construct. We just need to, once we are forced past it, then we will graduate into this uh, glorious stateless society, or that we just need a, you know, dictatorship of the proletariat. Or, there's a whole bunch of different groups. I, you know, I'm not even going to, to go into all of them. But at the end of the day, there's, you can never convince, you're never going to convince someone who wants this perfect ideal that it hasn't been accomplished because it, in their view, well, anything that isn't fit, doesn't fit that ideal 100% means that it basically didn't fit it at all, right? So you're never really going to be able to convince someone who says that there's a perfect state, there's a hypothetical perfect stateless society without class, without nationality, without anything, and everybody works hard and everybody shares. You're well, never going to get that practically. I mean, that, you know, human nature, you, you, you can uh, jump in there, Joe. Yeah. And the other thing too, is I just feel like none of the students or at least a lot of the students aren't actually taught any of this. Like we were just discussing in the group chat with regard to the ILR blog post about a radical labor revolution in conjunction with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was just reading a New York Times article that said, this isn't reform, this is revolution. This is a new world we're laying the groundwork for. So I thought to myself when I saw the title, it sounded almost like it was gonna be a criticism of it in the New York Times, which I was you know, pleasantly surprised by. I said, look at this, they're distinguishing between reform and revolution and saying reform is better. But of course I was disappointed. And when I actually read the article, the text of the article was worse than the title, which is usually the other, the other way around, but this time it wasn't. And it was supporting this notion of a revolution. It was written by a professor at Ohio State University who studies uh, inequity studies, as they call it, inequity studies and, and the justice system and ironically national security. And, and this professor who studies national security thinks the best way to keep the people safe, it's not by funding the police, but it's by abolishing them. So, you know, it's just something that is, it's very astonishing. Now, Sam, you had a tweet that went pretty viral. You had a tweet that got hundreds of retweets and hundreds of likes. And um, let's talk about that for a little bit. You spoke about how your grandfather escaped communism. You want to speak to that? Yeah. So like, you know, um, the other day uh, I was um, looking through my Twitter feed and I saw that there was a um, fellow, uh, conservative who said like you know people love communism because they're self-centered they don't realize that communism makes your life worse and like you know even uh from a familial experience um both my grandfathers escaped from north korea uh during the korean war 
Um, one of my grandfathers actually attended a uh, Christian high school uh, in Pyongyang, which is the modern day uh, capital of North Korea. And like, you know, he actually recounted a lot of stories where these communists would like North Korean Chinese troops would actually like, you know, target Christians. Like, you know, he heard stories from like other people who came from the North who actually found that like there was systematic, uh, a systematic execution of, of Christians, uh, other religious people um, in town by town. And like, you know, when I was reading the ILR letter, um, initially I was like, oh yeah, so they're going to call for a huge Marxist revolution. But like, I don't even think that the faculty know um, what a radical Marxist revolution is. Um, they don't know that when you call for communism, when you call for um, this uh, Marxist revolution to take place, they don't know that the very people the very people that they're advocating for are going to suffer the most. Um, my other grandfather came over, like, you know, saw the communist system. He actually worked in a fertilizer factory that was, um, that is still in operation in North Korea today. But he saw that they were like targeting not just um, big business owners, but small business owners, like shopkeepers, um, people who just became landlords uh, because they had uh, an enterprised, uh, they were uh, enterprising people. So um, both of my grandfathers personally experienced the difficulties and hardships that were wrought by communism. And if more people were allowed to speak about this, especially on American college campuses, I think um, students would abandon this folly of creating a communist revolution in America. That doesn't mean all reform is bad. I agree that some reforms need to take place, but dis, um, dismantling the entire American system, which enshrines rights, liberties for all citizens is not the answer to change some problems that might exist in our system today. Rollin, you want to jump in? You're on mute. Yep. Cool. Sorry about that. Uh no, that's, that's, that's huge, Sam. Uh, wow, I actually read your post and um, I, I really don't understand why people don't learn from the experiences of people that have lived through these things. Um, regarding communism in the US, you know, we have had a lot of road bumps. We're a young nation. Uh, we're the first to draft a constitution, the first to have such a diverse population and we see the inherent challenges. We see through history and current events that there's a lot of um, forms of government, but democracy is the best form of governance to ensure the best quality of life for the most people. Communism we see through history has ravaged populations. I think it's uh, like, what is it? A hundred years of communism, a hundred people dead. hundred million. hundred million. <laughs> um, yeah, our, our, cap, you know, our capitalist economic system is dog eat dog. It's, um, it's a harsh reality of life that there are always those that will do better than others. But through democracy, I think, um, you know, I think we have a winning formula. That being said, we, of course, do have to do better. Um, we have to ensure that we're taking care of our people. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that do feel disenfranchised.
but communism is definitely not the solution. Now, the thing that's interesting here too is like Rollin mentioned, communism killed 100 million people in the 20th century. The Holocaust killed 6 million. Now, the average student in college, I would say, knows a little bit about the Holocaust. They, they really don't know much, to be honest. They really don't know much of the historical details, but they know a fair bit. They know the risks of identity politics and how far that could go. But most of them don't know anything about the Marxist revolutions that have killed 100 million people. Most of them don't know anything about Mao, Stalin, any of those ones. So why do you think that is? Do you think it's because a lot of the people in academia sympathize with the Marxist ideology? Do you think it's because after Marxism failed from an economic standpoint and after that was made clear over 100 years and beyond that, they sort of switched to neo-Marxism, which is what you're seeing now, which is cultural Marxism. Um, what do you think the reason for that is that students who should be better educated on the Holocaust, they don't know enough about the Holocaust, but they know a small amount about a terrible atrocity on a mass scale that killed 6 billion people, but something that was even more widespread and did even more evil and killed 100 million people, which is Marxism in the 20th century, they know nothing about. They, they're romanticized by it. They think it's a beautiful thing. Well, I, oh, do you want to... There's a lot of ideologists out there. Um, and like you said, Joe, romanticism is a very good word. They get romanticized with this, um, with this idea that we can all, I don't know, that we can, that the rations will feed everybody. It's just idealization. It's, yeah. A, shrink a, mm, a shrinking pie, you could cut it evenly, but it's still a shrinking pie and eventually no one's going to have anything to eat. Quinn, you wanted to jump in? Yeah. So I think that there's, there's multiple factors factors that that lead to this i mean again that's the that's one of these things is that you know I, I don't think for any of any political issue really it's you know just one force that drives you in a certain direct direction there's always going to be a number of contributing ones right when it comes to marxists in academia we know you know empirically that uh you know decades ago there was mass communist infiltration of american institutions you know governments media education, churches, you know, we know that this happened. We have open co admitted communists who have said, yeah, we did that, right? We know that that happened. So that's one of the factors right there. As far as uh, why do people have this idealized vision of communism? Part of it is, yeah, of course, that they are taught about things like the Holodomor, right? Where, where your estimates are between five to 10 million people, uh, Ukrainians starved to death. And I mean, you look at, you know, it was, you know, absolutely horrific stuff. I mean, when you have to put out propaganda telling people not to eat their own children, you know, that's, you, you've gotten to a pretty horrific place as a society. But I think a big part of it is that the people who are, you know, uh, like Antifa, you know, out in the streets, you know, beat, beating people's skulls in with bike locks, these are the people who think that after this glorious revolution is over, they're going to be the ones in the Politburo. They're going to be the ones leading the secret police. You're not going to be. After, after a revolution, people who are revolutionaries are now a danger to the new government. After your, after your revolution, all those revolutionaries, they're going to be put up against the wall and they're going to be shot. Right? That's how it always works with communism. Uh, 
the people who helped you get there are no longer useful. You can't, in fact, they're a danger. You cannot have them around. And I think that's a big part that people, that people ignore. It, you know, good governance lies somewhere between idealism and pragmatism, and they just don't want to look at the pragmatism at all. You know, we can all jump around and say, oh, how wonderful would it be if we all were able to share and we were all able to do work that we loved and how great would our society be? But the fact is, is that that's not practical. That's not realistic, you know? And I think that's a, a huge part of it right there. For sure. Sam? Yeah, and I think another part of this has been um, the media that we've exposed our generation to. I mean, even... Um, just looking at all the quote-unquote activism that's been going on, all people um, aren't reading books. They aren't, um, and even the people who quote White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, a lot of them haven't even read the book. And it's very interesting to see how um, people haven't actually even been reading in this country. Um, one uh, post that really startled me um, from the perspective of activism was a post um, by this account that said, um, and I quote, 10 questions uh, people of color are forced to consider at some point in their lives. A seemingly simple thread that severely highlights how racism has impacted people of color globally. And the oversimplification of this information and the idea that you can somehow combine and generalize the experiences of millions of people around the globe and perhaps thousands of different cultures, histories, experiences, that's really dangerous, especially um, at the level of higher institutions. And um, one part of it is the media. The other part is the fact that we don't teach enough of a diverse history curriculum. I mean, like, yeah, we're taught like American history, world history, but what about European history? Um, a lot of schools do not offer European history or even make it mandatory. At my school, they only recently made an elective. And like, you know, and we should also be teaching other history as well. Um, but the problem is how can you expect people to fully understand the principles of the American Revolution of 1776 without also um, informing them on the found of the founding ideas that uh, come from uh, the classical and uh, to an extent uh, the European tradition as well. So I think um, it's a failure of education, it's a failure of the media, and it's really something that we as conservatives should definitely uh, try to fix. And that's why to go up the activist point, I don't like the term activists. When someone refers to me as someone who's a political activist, I think that's a term that's not only been hijacked, but it, it's people who may be well-meaning, but in many cases don't actually know what they're advocating for. When people are out there holding up signs and screaming at police, they think they're doing activism. And that's not activism. That's being regressive. That's not being progressive. And it's something that's really troubling to the country. And you see it now, this mass movement has taken over the mainstream culture in the country and this anti-American attitude has taken a grip on the population. Thankfully, now you're starting to see the right rise up and you're starting to see things like the back the blue rallies across the country. I'm very proud to see in my own hometown of New York City, of Staten Island, there were a lot of people doing back the blue protests with 
congressional candidate Nicole Maliotakis and other people, elected officials and patriots. You saw the college Republicans, uh, not the Cornell College Republicans, but you saw the College Republicans Federation of New York uh, or the Young Republican Club of New York. You saw them outside the Teddy Roosevelt statue defending the statue a couple of weeks ago. So now this is the time when people on the right are starting to rise up and be vocal because this is the time to be vocal because if you're not vocal now, you're gonna lose your country. Uh, that said, it's been a very interesting discussion. We're going to leave it there for today, and we'll catch you next week on the Cornell Review Roundtable Discussion.